Hello and welcome to another episode of Slice of AdTech, a podcast about big ideas in digital advertising brought to you by Plothrough, the market leader in programmatic monetization of ad filtering users. I am your host, Vijay, and today I'm speaking with Radko Vidakovic, founder of AdProfs and author of the widely popular newsletter, This Week in AdTech, which is read by over 12,000 industry professionals. Welcome to the show, Radko. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on this episode. So to start off, Ratko, would you mind giving us an, a little bit of uh, introduction into how you got started into the ad tech industry? Sure. It's been close to a decade as both a publisher selling ads on my site and as a media buyer running campaigns across the industry. So I guess you could say that I got started as a publisher. Uh uh-huh. A little over 20 years ago, I co-founded an online automotive community called Toyota Nation, and it grew to hundreds of thousands of users. It was primarily ad-supported, so that's where I got my first taste of ad tech, having to figure out ad serving, ad sense, CPMs, all of that fun stuff, but also digital marketing stuff like SEO, growing traffic, and so forth. I sold that business, and after selling it, I got curious about advertising from the marketer perspective, and I started to learn about how to plan, execute, and optimize ad campaigns across search, display, and social, which was relatively new at the time with MySpace ads and Facebook flyers. And then that led me to spend several years as a sort of performance marketing media buyer, managing lots of media campaigns across all these different channels. And then this whole period altogether, I think, gave me experience as both a media buyer and a seller, which I think is an interesting perspective. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. Like I knew that you had to have had an ad tech background to have the level of like expertise that you have. But uh, I think it's news to me too that uh, you actually started out working in publishing. You're in the business of analyzing and interpreting information. Where do you get your news from? Is it a lot of RSS feeds? Is it Grapevine? Is it both? So it's interesting that you mention RSS feeds because one of the most inefficient things that I did in retrospect when doing the newsletter for the first few years was that I'd basically comb through a bunch of different sources every day. So I'd go through newsletters, Twitter, LinkedIn, Google Alerts. And what I would do is I would just email the links to all of the articles (laughs) to myself in Gmail. And then I would open each link at the end of the week and read it in my browser, just super manual, super time consuming. And then I remembered (laughs) about RSS, this old thing called RSS that I mentally wrote off after Google Reader was shut down. And so I started looking into newer RSS products and they really came a long way. When I reintroduced that into my sort of workflow, it really streamlined things, more or less put all the information into one place. Mm -hmm. But yeah, RSS mainly, so AdExchanger, Digiday, Adweek, Insider. I think those are the the main ones for ad tech. Got it. Got it. Interesting. Yeah. I, I feel like RSS feed readers have come a long way. Some of them look like really good. They're good at like you can sort, categorize, tag information. Um, so what what does a typical workday look like for you, Radko? Yeah, so it starts with with the RSS reader. So that you can think of that as like the top of the funnel, so to speak. So each morning yeah. I go through the feed. Anything I find interesting, I flag as interesting. And then I only read the articles that, that I flag as interesting. So there's a bit of a curation. That's like the first 
step of curation because mm-hmm. there is a lot of noise, I guess you could say, within the trades. So try to like filter out the stuff that's like obvious PR or stuff that's yeah. not very interesting or not in my areas of interest. And then I only choose the articles that I feel are newsworthy of that sort of second batch and I shortlist them for inclusion into the newsletter. And then I just go through that shortlist with fine tooth comb and try to scrutinize like every sentence, every word with a, with a sort of critical lens. That's where I, I think a lot of the value gets generated where I generate questions, comments. I try to make connections to like past events, connections to research data or possibly some so, some relevant social media posts or whatever. And sometimes I'll even go back through my old newsletters and see what I previously covered or said about a topic. And then that usually inspires maybe new commentary and and so forth. This is a few hours of work. I try to get this done as early in the day as possible. In the middle of the day, I take my dog for a walk, Rocky. And then in the afternoon is usually administrative stuff. So dealing with emails, meetings, scheduling, that sort of thing. And then on days when I actually publish the newsletter, which is typically Sundays, it's usually like an eight hour stretch of just editing. So that's by far the most time consuming and intense part of the whole sort of like newsletter process. Okay. Yeah. Like you mentioned, like this information exists in like for everyone to consume, but I think it's the amount of time and focus that it requires and your unique perspective to pick what needs to be curated and add your own insights on top of that. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to request you to send me a picture of Rocky after this episode is finished recording. I'd like to see him. What do you like to do uh, when you're not working? Do you have any hobbies or passion projects? Yeah. So when I'm not working, I like to try to get away from the computer and do physical stuff in the real world, touch grass, as they say. Yeah. So, so for me, that's Wait, not, not literally touching grass, right? Or do you do that too? No. Does lawn care count? yeah for so for me it's mainly just like projects around the house home improvement stuff like diy sort of stuff Mm -hmm. so i like to go down rabbit holes on youtube and research things that are related to like home improvement and stuff so whether it's like for instance i went down a really deep rabbit hole of like energy efficient like looking into (laughs) the way the, the most energy efficient ways to insulate like exterior walls. And so that gets you into building science and it's Mm -hmm. actually pretty fascinating stuff. Yeah. And I I think of it like I was into like high performance cars when I was younger and Mm -hmm. now I'm interested in like high performance houses and that sort of stuff. So it's pretty middle-aged, (laughs) middle-aged Sounds Sounds like anything that has a little bent of science and a little bit of engineering to it. Yeah. Yeah. So again, it's also the, the main thing is that I, it's, I like it because it's physical. It gets me outside, takes my mind off of purely work stuff. Yeah. So when and how did the idea for starting Adros originate at Go? Yeah. So I originally wanted to start a business that was focused on education where I could share my expertise, share my understanding of the advertising technology ecosystem in various forms. And I was already creating this type of content at the company that I was working at, but it was very limiting and I didn't have full creative control, which was important to me. So I wanted to create a vehicle where I could create educational content with this full creative control. And, and then that's what led me to create, creating ad profs. And 
I don't think I ever shared the story about how the name was chosen, but I was originally going to call it programmaticmarketer.com. Okay. And I still have the domain if anybody is interested. <laughs> I'm um, sure someone's going to want to scoop that up. <laughs> but I wasn't 100% sold on it. Like it didn't feel ideal for a number of reasons. Like it felt like it was a little bit too long. Like yeah. programmatic marketer is a bit of a mouthful. It also felt a little bit too narrow. Like programmatic is very specific. Marketer is very specific. So mm-hmm. all in all, it didn't feel like a good brand name. One night I was in bed trying to fall asleep. And I was thinking about how I could improve this name by making it shorter, maybe a little less specific. So programmatic brought into advertising, which you can then shorten to like ad. And then instead of marketer, broadening it to like professional Mm -hmm. or or something like that, which can shorten like pro. And so I started looking into like ad pro, ad pros, everything was taken. And then I thought prof is close props and the ladder was available and it felt like a good brand so i ran with it yeah it, it, it is catchy it is it's quite succinct although I, thank you for sharing that story i must admit that every time that so far at least when i looked at ad profs for some reason i've always assumed that it's ad professors <laughs> but good to be corrected w- what are some things that you've learned in the process of building ad profs ah <sighs> It's a big one. So I've been doing it for almost eight years. It's easily the longest I've worked on a single thing. I think if I had to generalize, I'd say the biggest thing I've learned is to think bigger. So my goal when I first started out, as I mentioned, was to share educational content and share my knowledge with the industry. But my goal was simply to just make a full-time income with ad profs. And between consulting projects and the membership offering, I was able to achieve that, but I just, I reached a point where in retrospect, that was like a short-sighted goal. Mm -hmm. So I more or less just created a job for myself that very little leverage. The services Mm -hmm. rely completely on me. There really isn't enough profit to grow in a meaningful way. So it's basically like an endless horizon of work (laughs) with no, (laughs) (laughs) no real, no real upside. And very little discretionary time to work on any other projects. So I'd say that's the first thing in general that I wasn't thinking big enough or long-term enough when I first started. Same thing with consulting, starting off with consulting. If I could do it over again, I probably wouldn't have started with consulting or done any sort of consulting whatsoever, mainly because trading your time for money sucks and there's no leverage for kind of the work that you put in. And then also just when people ask, what does your company do? What does AdProfs do? Referring to it as a consultancy also sucks. Just from a positioning perspective, it's not very compelling. And I, in, in retrospect, not really an ideal association that I like to establish for the brands. I'd much rather that it be associated with a newsletter. And, and as far as like the membership offering as well, that was also a sort of an evolution on consulting. You can think of it as like group consulting for members. That was better definitely better than consulting, but I think it was also uh, a bit flawed and it took me a long time to accept those mainly because it's had the same issue with being like basically Ratco as a service. So it was like completely dependent on me. Mm-hmm. And I think the pandemic really highlighted that where if there's any sort of interruptions or if the conditions of your life are not perfect, <laughs> like the business can't rely on, on someone's life being perfect hundred percent of the time. It's a very yeah. risky, it's a very risky business. Yeah. And there was also some business model flaws as well, which we don't have to get into, but 
basically is because of all those hard lessons of like in the process of reevaluating things at the moment. Mm-hmm. You did manage to create the most popular ad tech newsletter, right? So it sounds like there were like in this experience of building ad pros, there were some pros and cons and things that you realized, but it, it was still some parts of it are and have been a spectacular success. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so I think if you think about like moving forward, mm-hmm. what's next and like, where do I see the company like in the next five, 10 years, or what do I feel is the future or interesting mm-hmm. about it? I think the one thing that you did mention, like talking about the newsletter, I think that's one thing that's going to stay the same. I think okay. like, this week in ad tech, I think it's great. People really like it. So I think that's going to continue. It's temporarily paused just while I focus on determining the future of the product, but it's going to mm-hmm. resume very shortly. And so, yeah, I'm just basically working on something new right now. Mm-hmm. It's, I think where it's going to evolve, where the company is going to evolve is primarily in the product offering, mainly in two ways. So the first is just rethinking the entire delivery of the product. So mm-hmm. moving away from the consulting and membership models and more towards an enterprise product that creates more value and also probably no surprise that it's going to leverage AI and data in, in new and interesting ways. So I'm pretty excited about that. I think it's going to be something that the industry hasn't seen before Mm -hmm. and it's going to be into the core of the product. Yeah. That's more or less the vision right now. Okay. I think people will be relieved to know that they're like, you do plan to bring the newsletter back because it's going to save them that those four to eight hours in a week that you know, that you put in essentially on behalf of the people that want this information, but can't find it themselves. And best of luck also for the new project that that you're working on. Okay, so let's dive into the meaty part of this episode. We want to, we'd love to get your thoughts on some of the things that are happening in the industry right now. Let's start with this. According to you, what are some of the key challenges that publishers will need to navigate going into 2024 and beyond? But perhaps the top three that come to your mind. Yeah. So I think there's a few that come to mind. I'd say the biggest one is probably the challenge around the upcoming deprecation of third-party cookies in Chrome. (laughs) So there is, there's still a lot of, I think, uncertainty about what the ecosystem is going to look like, how it's going to operate in that world, how that's going to affect publisher revenue, how that's going to affect publisher power, negotiating leverage, bargaining mm-hmm. power in that new world. So for example, there's a lot of talk about privacy sandbox. Are the are those features going to be a net positive or a net negative on publisher revenue, on publisher direct sales efforts? Is there is this shift towards third-party contextual segments? Is that is that going to undermine publisher first-party data initiatives? or their direct sales efforts? Is there going to be downward pressure on CPMs with the loss of some of these signals? So I think that's, there's a lot of like speculation that one Mm -hmm. can make, but there's still a lot of uncertainty and that's still a big, that's unfolding under our feet as we speak. But I think that that is a challenge. And then another one related to that, or not really related to it, but it's just, it's a challenge that I think will have implications is around sustainability, this this whole sort of push towards sustainability. So Mm -hmm. for example, lots of publishers use multiple header bidding wrappers. Hmm. So pre-bid, Amazon, Google, 
This creates a lot of bid duplication, which folks like Chris Kane at Jounce Media have reported on for quite some time. So this yep. bid duplication increases publisher revenue, but it creates uh, a lot of inefficiency. And one ways that inefficiency has an impact is on sort of excess carbon emissions. So I think it's a tricky issue to navigate. At the same time, you have these made for advertising sites, which are mm-hmm. also big offenders in this whole sustainability push. And if marketers and the ad tech ecosystem clamp down on MFA sites, there's a ripple effect that impacts publishers, I think in potentially good and bad ways. On the one hand, publishers stand to benefit from the reallocation of advertising budgets with MFA sites stealing less of the overall pie. Mm -hmm. And then on the other hand, publishers also depend on revenue from companies like Taboola and Outbrain, which are key players in the whole arbitrage equation behind many MFA sites. So um, again, I think it's just like, it's a tricky, it's a tricky challenge that I think is already starting, but it's going to take six, 12, 18 months to, to play out third. not quite sure what I put as the third is for the top three, but I think there's evergreen challenges like brand safety, like mm-hmm. advertisers blocking keywords that sort of negatively impact uh, news content monetization, things like that. Mm-hmm. Evergreen issue. Yeah. I've heard about like the made for advertising thing. And I know that there are some companies that internally maintain like block lists, but it's just made me think that it would be interesting to have maybe a public list of sites that with a reasonable level of confidence people feel are made for advertising. I don't I don't think I've come across anything like that. But leaning into the thing that you were talking about in terms of sustainability being one of the challenges and focus areas for the publishing industry, I've heard a thing, I'm sure you have too, that the digital publishing industry collectively emits more carbon than the commercial airline industry. We now have people in the ad tech industry talking about the earth's ozone layer and whatnot. How bad do you think the problem really is? Do you have any quick tips for publishers to start operating more sustainably? So I'll just start by giving a little disclaimer. Okay. (laughs) I'm 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 not an expert by any means in like carbon emissions. I'll say that like when I first heard the claim about how much carbon ad tech emits, I had a bit of a hard time believing it. Yeah. Because after all, like we're talking about server requests at the end of the day. And like, how is that worse than a jet engine or even a car engine for that matter, in terms of producing carbon emissions? But I guess if you look at it in aggregate, data centers consume a lot of electricity. They produce a lot of heat, which requires air conditioned buildings and lots of energy usage. So makes sense. I can see how it might be an issue. I don't know about the relative magnitude compared to other things. When I did some research, it appears that if you put the entire internet together, it contributes something like low single digits of global emissions. And so you're talking about ad tech as like a fraction of that. I'm not really sure. It's, it, it seems to me to be small in the grand scheme of things, be that as it may. I think sustainability is still a corporate goal for many companies mm-hmm. and as for publishers and what quick tips or advice, I'm not sure if there's any quick tips per se without trade-offs. For instance, mm-hmm. it's, it's easy for me to say, reduce the number of header bidding wrappers you use or 
work with fewer partners or stop refreshing your ads as often. But I would also have to acknowledge that all of those things would likely have a negative impact on revenue. Right. So it's not an easy question to answer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's talk about something else. But I, I appreciate your perspective on that. I had the same feeling about the commercial airline industry. But for example, like you mentioned, I never thought about the fact that all these sort of locations need to be air conditioned and that contributes to the problem. Let's talk about retail media. Many legacy retail companies are pivoting to direct-to-consumer advertising. As part of its IPO readiness disclosures, Instacart revealed that they made $406 million from advertising in the first half of, of this year. Who do you think will emerge as the winners and the losers from this transition? And do you think that the ad tech industry is going to get a piece of this pie? Yeah, I think there'll be winners for ad tech companies that are helping to facilitate this growth and this transition to retail media. So you have companies like Critio and Trade Desk and Kevl. These are like a few ad tech companies that come to mind as getting a piece of the pie, as you put it. Then there's also all of the retailers and platforms that are actually putting putting these programs into place like Instacart and Walgreens and Uber Eats. And yeah. for them, it's all incremental revenue. So I think they're all winners in this in this situation it's hard to say who will lose from the shift to retail media mainly because the money is you know primarily coming from merchandising budgets and not typical ad budgets so i'm not sure there maybe maybe the advertisers or the brands are could be considered (laughs) losers in this case like i'm not sure like just uh, yeah it it all depends on whether it's a worthwhile investment and whether it actually produces that incremental sales what you're saying is that companies will need to have good measurement in place to make sure that they don't end up on the losing side if there ends up being a losing side yeah yeah exactly so let's uh, let's the next one that i have for you is what do you think about the net impact of all the privacy regulations that have come up in recent years, uh, starting with GDPR? Is, do you think that the web is really a better place for the average user or have we actually inadvertently made it worse by adding yet another interruption? Yeah, so this one's it's multifaceted. Are there practices, particularly like in mobile with location data where things have gotten better for users? I think so, at least mm-hmm. in some sort of incremental ways. Companies, I think, are more cognizant of data collection and asking for consent. And location data has been especially, I think, under the microscope. Um, Mm -hmm. As for, you mentioned, like the web, is the web a better place for the average user? I don't think so. Uh, So not only has the user experience gotten worse with pop-ups, consent pop-ups, most of which are in, you know, (laughs) direct violation of, GDPR, but I digress. Okay, I'd love to hear. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that thread. Yeah, it's just more. It's more so like how the options are create, how the options are presented. Like just one example is there should be equal prominence of accept and reject. It should be. It should be just as easy to decline. But one option is usually pre-selected or highlighted in a different color. Exactly. Exactly. So accept is very easy. It's one click, but to decline requires like. At the very least, more than one click. Okay. But it's actually much more than that. And then explaining everything to the end user so that they, the whole notion of informed consent. Mm-hmm. I'm not so sure that the average user is providing informed <laughs> yeah. consent yeah. because informed consent implies that they understand 
right. where their data is going and who's getting it and so forth, which I don't think even most publishers could answer. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've seen a couple of those kind of really weird implementations where if you try to opt out, the dialog box is going to give you like three. Here are 300 different companies that you can individually opt out from. Yeah, so just like dark patterns. And also, I think just the reaction from the ad tech industry overall has just been a push towards more personal data collection, emails, phone numbers, opaque techniques like fingerprinting. So is that better? Is that a better place for the average user? I'm not so sure. I think it's also hurt a lot of smart, small ad tech companies, smaller publishers. This has been shown in academic research. Same thing with the beneficiaries have primarily been large companies, mostly walled gardens and very large publishers. And so, yeah, overall, I don't think the web is, is in a better place. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, if I were to be cynical, I would say that I, I just get the sense that like it, it seems to me like to be an attempt to just control the internet. Uh, but that's right. just my impression after five years or so of observation. Okay. Thanks for sharing that. We actually surveyed 5,000 US internet users in like 2021. And 50% of the people that we surveyed couldn't, didn't even know what GDPR or CCPA meant. So I think that kind of lines up with the thing that you were talking about, informed consent. How can you have that if you don't even understand the regulation? Um, okay. Yeah, yeah, and the users don't even, like, they don't know what's, they just know that their experience is getting worse. They don't yeah. know, they don't even know what's driving it. They don't know that the companies are being driven by all of these regulations behind the scenes. Do you feel hopeful that, I feel like a lot of implementations that we see of consent collection today is like ad tech companies trying to find the closest match they can to to getting the consent while still being in the general vicinity of complying with the regulations do you feel hopeful that maybe in the next three or four or five years things might get a little more streamlined a little better for the user on the web yeah that's hard hard to say i don't see i can kind of see it getting worse <laughs> i see okay. it getting worse before yeah. it gets better just for just to use facebook as an example right like i think facebook was a good or meta like they're a good example of what you alluded to where a company tries to do tries to basically push the boundaries of its interpretation of the law and then right. it only it's only once regulators come and correct them do they then try a different approach so it might start with relying on a, one legal basis and then moving over to another legal basis once the regulators push back on that. And then mm -hmm. eventually, they probably knew deep down that eventually they'd have to rely on something like consent as their legal basis. But mm -hmm. they first want to exhaust all of the other options yep. and, and be told that they can't do all those other options before they eventually have to do the thing that they didn't want to do. Mm -hmm. Th thanks for your perspective on that. Okay. The the other question I have for you, Radko, is in the not so distant past, ad blocking used to be the hot topic in the industry. What do you think? Why do you think that interest has waned? Is it because bigger problems came along or because that problem got solved? So I, I think the interest has waned for, for a couple of reasons. So like you said, I think there's just more pressing problems to deal with. Some of them that we've talked about today there's just bigger fish to fry, so to speak. Mm. But I also think that ad blocking has become like the air we breathe. Like it's accepted as part of reality. At least yeah. that's the impression that I get. And so if we accept ad blocking as reality, the question becomes, 
what kind of ad blocker is best for the industry and mm -hmm. does the industry want ad blockers that are uncompromising and take scor scorched earth approach or yeah. does the industry want ad blockers that take a more reasonable more balanced approach and naturally i think it's it's pretty obvious that it's better for the industry to have ones that adhere to standards like acceptable ads which mm -hmm. take a broad group of stakeholders into account users ad tech companies publishers advertisers and so on and they try to find like a sweet spot between the user experience and monetization. Thanks. Thank you, Radko. I think it's time to wrap things up. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you also to our listeners for tuning into this episode. We hope you learned something new and useful in our chat with Radko. If you haven't already, subscribe to Slice of AdTech on Spotify, Google, Apple Podcasts, or any other place you get your podcasts from so you never miss an episode. This is Vijay, and I'll see you next time. Thanks.